everybody! Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are. We are. That's fact. That is fact. That is fact. We have not changed. We have not changed, nor have we been... Nor have we closed? I was going to say, nor have we been clothed. (laughs) No, we are. We are. We are are clothed. clothed. I haven't changed our clothes. But welcome to our 112th episode. Right. We'll still do this thing where we'll count the episodes even though they're in the episode name. Yes, but we do seem to do that, so I figured I'd mention it. It's true. It is our 112th episode. Nothing too exciting about that number. Anyway, uh, this is the part where we talk about games that we've been playing. So Seth, what have you been recently playing? So I've actually been recently been playing a game called The Sword and the Slime. It's a game that's been developed by a company called Possum House Games. We actually ended up meeting them at Retro World Expo. We played their upcoming game called Tank Pig. I'm not sure if they might have had Sword and the Slime. I think they had a poster about it. Or something. They, they probably had, they had, had something, something about, about it. it. Retro World Expo was kind of a blur. Though it's on Steam for about six bucks. It's a uh, a fun mouse only game, which is really cool. So the only control that you have to worry about is the mouse. So using the mouse, you can control a flying sword. You can left click and you swing, and you right click to restart the level because it's kind of like a puzzler type game. You eventually team up with a slime, hence the sword and the slime, and the slime is kind. Kind of reminds me of like a gelatinous cube from Dungeons and Dragons. And the slime will grow if it eats things and shrink if it gets hurt by things. And you have to use the slime and your flying swordness to accomplish puzzles and get farther in each level. The sword can only fly in light, and if it's too dark, you fall. And there's also creatures that like emit some sort of purple gravity wells. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, they emit some like aura, because I've also played a bit of Sword in the Slime. It's a good game. It is, it is, it is a really good game. It's very relaxing and gets you thinking, which is all things that you look for when you play a game yeah so, yeah the sword and the slime put together by possum house games and it uh, like i said the msrp is for like i think 5.99 on steam it's also on itch.io and uh so is there rest of their stuff so i uh, check it out uh it's a it's a fun uh playthrough of a game i really enjoyed playing through it so zach what have you been playing well seth as you know i am very into bootleg games i have recently been playing a bootleg game called sonic 3d blast 5 which is the fifth game in the non-existent Sonic 3D Blast series. There is only one actual Sonic 3D Blast. There is not four more that follow. Wait, so this is Sonic 3D Blast 5. Correct. And there is no Sonic 3D Blast 2 through 4. Four? No. And not even a bootleg version of Sonic Blast 2 through 4? No. So there is just a Sonic Blast. So they just put a 5 to be cool? Yeah. Is it a Roman numeral 5 or is it just the number 5? No, it's, five? it's the number 5. It's superimposed on the title. <laughs> it's, so it's not even like a cool Roman numeral. There is another bootleg Sonic game. Uh, oh, there's a bunch of bootleg Sonic games, but there is another one that's on the Game Boy, um, which is called Sonic 6. Um, there. <laughs> So they didn't even do like a prequel to Sonic Five. Wait, but but and that that Sonic Six is not Sonic 3D Blast. No, it's just Sonic Six. So that that would imply that there is a Sonic Four and a Sonic Five, which there are not. Well, there is a Sonic Four, but it's official and it sucks. Um, but oh, that's right, there is, there is. I forgot about that. So there's a missing Sonic 5 and a missing Sonic 3D Blast, all of them, except one. <laughs> yeah, two through four. 
Nice. All right, continue. Anyway, yeah, this is a bootleg game uh, released sometime in 1997, though that is not 100% confirmed. The earliest cartridges that had the game on it come from around 1997, and it was developed by a company called Makinsoft. Uh, Makinsoft is located out of either China or Taiwan. Again, not 100% certain where they're from, but we do know who they are. There's enough information that we know the company exists. There's not enough information to know where the company was located like physically and they operated from around 1997 to 2011 and again the only reason we really know this is because some of their earliest games go back to 1997 and they actually did release some apps they were just like games in the app candy store. crush <laughs> yeah like candy crush knockoffs so we know that they were still in operation at least around then they are primarily known for making pretty bad games and sonic 3d blast 5 is a pretty bad game uh the controls are very wonky the music is grading and the gameplay is just not what you'd expect when playing a sonic game so for example you can spin dash in sonic 3d blast 5 but spin dashing does not damage enemies so if you spin dash into an enemy you will get hurt no matter what also if you get hurt your character will fall backwards in a way so that sometimes you'll just land on top of spikes and just die immediately another thing is while you can collect rings to uh, have some health it doesn't matter how many rings you collect if you get hit once you lose all of your rings so you have to collect your rings again does not matter if you have 30 rings or two rings you have one hit if you get hit again with zero rings you're dead however if you get hit with zero rings and you fall into some rings you will not die because sonic only dies if he touches the ground after being hit with zero rings in this bootleg it's very weird so sometimes you'll have zero rings you'll get hit you'll fall into a pile of rings you might have missed behind you and you'll be alive still and you're like oh one of the reasons i've been playing it is because when i was very little and i learned about its existence at the time i found out about it youtube wasn't really a thing and neither was game capture like hardware that was easy to come by so i had no clue what this game was like i only went by the photos and as a little kid i was like i want to play that game i want to play sonic on my game boy being much older i now know what the gameplay is like and i knew what the gameplay was like before i acquired this cartridge but i still want to play through it because it feels like a weird challenge now that like i know this game is bad but i want to beat it <laughs> like i, I want to get through it and there's something to say about a company like making soft a bootleg company that ported sonic to the game boy though very poorly they did their darndest their darndest isn't any good but they could have easily just hacked a pre-existing game and put sonic assets into it as other bootleggers have done in the past and just called that their game but instead they actually went off and created their own engine and their own assets to use in this game i mean mind you they stole a lot of the graphics from pre-existing sonic games but they found a way to get them to display on the game boy without much issue and you know for that i commend them though they definitely didn't put that ingenuity to later games that they made as they recycled the exact same engine for sonic 3d blast 5 for majority of the games that they released on the game boy including some pokemon games some digimon games and the sonic 3d blast 5 sequel sonic adventure 7 <laughs> <laughs> that's good i just feel like they're in a conference room and they have like a mab libs and it's like name name number sonic legends 4 <laughs> <laughs> that could be a bootleg before i finish this off sonic 3d blast 5 for the game boy should not be confused 
with Sonic 3D Blast 5 for the Famicom, which is another bootleg game released for the Famicom by a different company and also does not have any prequels in its numbering. Do you own the Famicom copy of the Sonic 3D Blast 5? No, I don't. I am. That is a uh, one that I'm, I'm I'm searching for. It's based on the Somari engine, that one. So there was a Famicom game called Somari, which put Mario in Sonic World. And then the same people who made that game just replaced Mario with Sonic and called it Sonic 3D Blast 5 and released that. Wait, 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 wait. So Mari, so Mar, so Mario is Mario and Sonic's world. Yes. And then they replaced the Mario with Sonic. So that was just Sonic and Sonic's world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they ever bring Sonic into Mario's world? No, other people did. But, but I, I'm aware not. that other people did. <laughs> yeah, That'd be yeah, funny they if not. they did. And then they brought Mario into Mario's world. Then they would have been sued by Nintendo. <laughs> they didn't have to worry about being sued. They were bootleggers. They were already committing a crime. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's th- what I've been playing. It certainly counts as a game. Right. And it, it segues into our topic of today very easily. Since Sonic is a Sega game, and today we're here to talk about the Sega channel. Ooh. Uh, we also, we're going to talk about, throughout this uh, episode, we're going to talk about the Sega MegaNet. And perhaps even talk about some missing games and Sonic Eraser. We'll go through some things. But first, we're going to talk about the Sega Channel. And the Sega Channel is kind of interesting because the Sega Channel is like Game Pass, but in the 90s. Yes. So despite what you may have assumed, where online video game systems are a modern, you know, within the last 15 years or so, they've really gotten traction, where you go and download video games through the internet. It's it's not actually a modern thing. Well, I guess if you say the 90s are modern, but I believe that people are now stating that the 90s are decidedly not modern. They're kind of entering their own era. I'm from the 90s. I don't feel very modern. <laughs> I am kind of also mostly from the 90s as well. So in fact, the practice of attempting to get a console online predates even the modern internet as we know it. One of the earliest attempts to connect people via an online system, not necessarily to distribute games games through, but just to connect people online, was in the 1980s through the use of dial-up internet. If you don't know what dial-up internet is, we're going to give you a little short definition here. Dial-up is a form of accessing the internet by means of a public switch telephone network that dials to an internet service provider via conventional telephone lines. This was done through the use of a modem, which would act as a translator for the encoded signals from computer to computer. The game line for the Atari 2600 and play cable for the Intellivision were two early uses of using dial-up to connect players. These devices acted as special cartridges, which often came with proprietary hardware and a jack for the phone line. The Atari game line and Intellivision play cable were fairly unique devices and would offer a user to download software from a central server at a nominal fee. Dial-up internet was slow because it went over telephone lines. However, telephone lines are weird because telephone lines are kind of like impervious. I Similar to like fiber optic lines, they're kind of like impervious to like power outages. Then the only problem would be you couldn't power your device if it was connected. No, you needed like a battery and yeah, then you could yeah. get online. But yeah, you, you could. You could check your mail. So 
The Atari game line, though, um, as Seth was talking about, was released in 1983. It cost $60 at the time, which in today's money is $167.95. Uh, and that's just for the hardware, which was a big honking cartridge that you stuck in the top of your Atari. There was a membership fee, which was $15.00. And that is about $41.99 in today's money. And each game that you could access would be about a dollar, um, which is about $2.90 in today's money. The Intellivision Play Cable, on the other hand, launched in 81, so a few years before the game line. This was about $12 a month, $36.81 today, and would allow users the ability to access about 20 games per month, though there was a $25 activation fee which in today's money is $76.68. Um, so overall, I think the play cable is probably the better bargain uh, because you had more games that you could access and you didn't have to pay per game. Both of these services, though, were unique and rather innovative, though they just came at the wrong time. Because if you think about it, play cable came out in 81. Gameline came out in 83. The video game market crashed in 1983. So less and less people were going to buy video games in general didn't matter if you had some nifty way to connect to the internet. That wasn't a concern of people's at the time. No one was buying video games. So even if they were innovative and cool, they just weren't in the right era. The Atari game line though, is a pretty important piece of history because the company that sold the service for the game line was a company called Control Video Corporation. This company would eventually become known as America Online in 1991. However, that is a story for a different day. <laughs> Another company that got into the dial-in service was a little company called Nintendo, but their dial-in service was only in Japan. In 1988, they released something called the Family Computer network system for the Famicom console. Uh, and again, uh, for those who might not remember when we've talked about before, the Famicom is the Japanese name for the Nintendo. It was slightly different than what we know as the NES, but it was virtually the same hardware. Just, just didn't look like a VHS player. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't look like a VHS player and the cartridges were a little bit more colorful. Now, the Family Computer Network System, or the Famicom Net System, was a device that slotted directly into the Famicom's cartridge slot on the top. And it allowed for a variety of services that you can use your Famicom for, uh, such as live stock trading, daily jokes, weather forecasts, betting on horse racing, cheats for your video games, and a variety of downloadable content. If you wanted to access any particular software, though, you would have to have an additional ROM card, which kind of looked like a credit card of sorts, uh, that would slot right into the device. And this allowed you to access the horse betting software or the daily jokes software or the stock trading software it's great i really miss like the the era that people actually like do people need daily jokes like i just like something like a service that provided like daily jokes the fact that daily jokes existed made that era just sound very sad <laughs> <laughs> well you know kind of was we didn't have our we didn't have our social media that we could just like peer into the abyss imagine being a businessman at the time and like you had your rom cards for the day you'd slot in your trading software, do some day trading, take that out, pop in your daily jokes for your lunchtime, pull that out, and finish the day with some horse betting. The 1990s is often considered in video game history the dawn of the console wars. The 80s brought the crash and the 90s brought renewed vigor and fighting. The Sega Mega, the Sega Mega Drive was released in 1988, 
but was mostly clouded by the release of Super Mario Bros. 3 just a few weeks earlier. As Sega began to struggle against their new competitor, they immediately began to think outside the box. One of these ideas was to utilize an idea that Nintendo had previously taken a dive into, an internet service. The Sega Mega Modem Peripheral and Mega Net service officially launched on November 3rd, 1990 in Japan. It initially cost around 12,800 yen, or about 100 bucks USD, which if you bring it to modern day, it would be $213.31. And there was an additional 800 yen monthly fee, which goes back down to about 900 yen or $7.85. In terms of a technical aspect, the MegaNet attached to a nine pin connector on the back of the Japanese Model 1 Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. This attachment allowed the Sega to interface with a phone line and thus allowed it to connect to the MegaNet service. I think what's interesting about this era was this was prior to USB type connectors. Yeah. So, which is a USB stands for universal serial bus. And if you didn't have a universal serial bus, you needed to have connectors for everything to communicate to the hardware what that port is trying to connect to. So you need a specific port for a printer or to connect to the internet. And they are all weird sizes for various reasons, but I, I think it was maybe a little thought forward for Sega to have a connector that could get to the modem built into their Genesis model. I think it was also innovative in the sense that because of where it slotted in in the back, it allowed you access to the ports in the front for your controllers and stuff. Stuff, which meant that they actually had something called the Mega Answer, which was like banking peripherals that you could attach to your Sega. So you could have like like a a machine to crunch numbers on, and literally your Sega just acted as like the the horsepower to this machine. <laughs> so oh, that's fun. yeah, so you you had the different peripherals and stuff that you could use for much more serious items, which you know was beneficial for families who both had kids who wanted to play Sega games and also had parents who needed to get to work and maybe had to work from home. So be much cheaper to have something like the mega modem with your banking peripherals than potentially buying a home computer at the time. Like even the Famicom was family computer. So they had, it was more than just video games. And I think this era, we're seeing a shift of these consoles that were really designated as like home entertainment platforms for everybody, you know, like your dad can do the work and your kid can play the game to becoming dedicated video game devices which is a shift i i always felt like in which it may be also a cultural thing because i always felt like in america we had our traditional um computers that would do their like the, the especially around this era we would have our personal computers and then we had our video game consoles but that may also, I like, I never tried to do my taxes on my Sega Genesis. Also, just as a quick little aside for the technical aspect of the Mega Modem, uh, apparently at connection speeds of up to 1,200 bits a second, which wow. back then, that was, that was blazing fast. It certainly wasn't probably the fastest you could go with internet, but hey, uh, I'm sure it was perfectly capable of doing what it was intended to do, which was, of course, play video games. So the, the Mega Net is able to access a variety of games and we're going to talk about those games in a little bit but something that's unique to MegaNet that the Sega channel doesn't have was that the MegaNet was all unique 
games. There were 24 in total, and each game was unique to the Mega Net, and very few of them were ever re-released. But we're not here to talk about just the Mega Net. We're also going to talk about what America got. Which was the Sega Channel. The Sega Channel was a separate online service released for the Genesis across most of the world, and some Mega Drive aspects in uh, European markets. However, predominantly was a US-based release. Before the release of the Sega Channel, Sega of America had announced the Telegenesis service in 1990, around the time MegaNet launched in Japan, but that service was ultimately canceled as they worked on releasing the Sega Channel. Uh, Sega does this regularly. The Sega of America and Sega of Japan do not communicate whatsoever. So there's constantly... Reoccurring theme. It's a reoccurring theme with every episode that we talk about. We have a lot of episodes dedicated to Sega where we talk about the Genesis and the Saturn Dreamcast. We have a number of episodes where we've talked about all the different consoles and a reoccurring theme is the Sega of America and Sega of Japan don't talk. Regardless, Mega... The Mega Net didn't do so well in Japan, and we'll get over that when we get to our numbers portion of the episode where we'll we'll talk about how these different services actually did. So Sega wasn't really looking to create that type of service in the U.S. market until 1993. It was at this point that the Sega Channel was announced, and unlike previous online services, the Sega Channel did not use a phone line, but instead used a coax cable and was able to connect to its service via the same technology as cable television. The Sega channel was demonstrated at CES in 1993 and the initial trials were conducted with 5,000 North American customers in 12 U.S. test markets. In the in the United States, the service was provided by Time Warner Cable and Telecommunications Incorporated. After you bought the add-on, it could be inserted into the Sega Genesis cartridge slot. From there, you can screw in a coax cable and once you power up everything you'll be prompted with a very 1990s menu. From here you could download a select number of games that were provided in the given broadcast window. After the window had elapsed you would have access to another select set of games. Which this reminds me of another service that's available today. Microsoft's Game Pass. While the service was originally envisioned for pretty much just a North American audience it did spread across the globe. Uh, Sega Channel services were offered globally by other providers, um, such as Japan, which had a unique BIOS screen when you booted the system. And the service there was provided by Sega Digital Communications, which was a joint venture between Sumitomo Corporation and Itochu Corporation, who were two of the largest cable operators in the country at the time. Sega Digital Communications also provided the service to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, and South Korea. The service was also available in the UK, Europe, and South America, again, through a variety of different providers who offered it. Um, So to give you kind of a a reason why we keep mentioning these providers is because for the most part, Sega alone is not an internet service provider or a cable provider. So they could not offer the service by themselves. They had to go through people that had the infrastructure to run the service. Hence why they had to work with Time Warner here in America because Time Warner and TCI had the satellites, which is what they needed, was the actual satellites in space 
that they could bounce their signal off of into your home system, pretty much. And Sega wasn't launching satellites. They were not in that business. It would be awesome if they did. I would love it if Sonic was in space right now. <laughs> I want a Sega satellite. But uh, they, they did not have satellites. So that's why they needed these providers who could offer the space for them. In the U.S., the service officially launched in December of 1994. Fees varied by location, but typically it was about $12.95 a month, or about $24.36 today, and there was a one-off activation fee of $25, which is about $47.03. The games you were accessing after you paid these fees were essentially free, which was great. So during the broadcast window, you could play these games as much as you wanted, and you could play all of these games as much as you wanted during the window. So if there were 50 games available, you would access to all 50 games for that broadcast window at just the cost of the monthly fee and that one-time activation fee. So looking at today's money, about, let's say, about $47 for the activation fee, uh, let's round it down to $24 for today's money, you're looking at under 100 bucks, right? That's really not a bad deal for the service it was providing overall. Now, compare this to the price of a video game at the time, in 1994, which was $60 a game. In today's money, that's $112 a game. That was not chump change. You know, that's not just money that people were throwing around back then. So this service was very appealing. Now, Zachary mentioned satellite. We actually were able to dig through the archives and I found an electronic gaming monthly article in regards to the Sega channel, uh, which helped us fill out some of the numbers portion of the episode. So I'll reference this magazine again. However, they did have a, a wonderful infographic on how they explained how games are sent through cable television. So if you're curious, I'm going to go through and explain that to you. So all the game data is placed on a CD-ROM. That data stream is looped and sent out. Because the data takes up little bandwidth, cable companies can provide Sega Channel without removing any current channels in their lineup. The data signal is sent out via antenna to a Hughes Galaxy Communications Satellite, which then bounces the signal back to the local cable companies that offer Sega Channel. The local cable company receives, interprets, and sends the signals to subscribers. Then you have a special adapter that you rented out essentially or is kind of like your you had like a cable box that you rented as a subscriber through the Sega channel and you decoded that signal coming in from your local cable company. The game then could be downloaded in about one or two minutes, which is probably another reason why the Sega channel was very very popular because it was done over cable and not over the the phone lines because the phone lines are very very slow. Cable is very, very fast, especially in the 90s. Some interesting statistics that I found as well was that Zach was saying that there was a window of 50, 60 games available during that window, and the window would be a month, so they would change it over. And the average games that were tried per month during the high, the peak point with the Sega channel was 31.2 games a month people were trying out. So that was like a different game a day. The average subscriber was 
was about 19 years old, and it skewed towards the male population, 83% male, 17% female. And we'll once again touch back on this article um, when we get back to the numbers as we, we go along here. On the Sega MegaNet, there were 24 games, which were a mixture of action, RPG, sports, and betting gambling titles. Because what's a what's a home console without some sort of betting gambling title in, involved? Some of the action games on the system were 16T, Hyper Marbles, Robot Battler, Flicky, and Teddy Boy Blues. Flicky and Teddy Boy Blues would go on to get cartridge releases. Flicky is a fun game involving the birds from Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, it's the the blue bird that shows up in Sonic. The RPG titles included Fantasy Star 2 Tex Adventures and Fatal Labyrinth, which Fatal Labyrinth would receive a cartridge release. Did Fantasy Star 2 Tex Adventures get a cartridge release? It did not. It never well, even got an English release officially. If you're a Fantasy Star fan, which there are some dedicated fans of Fantasy Star, and you have not played Fantasy Star 2 Tex Adventures, I don't know what you're missing out on, but you're missing out on something. If you go to CD, I think it's CDRomance.com or something like that. It's a uh, like a site where people upload translations of games. You can actually download the complete Fantasy Star 2 to text adventures in english um, you can play on your emulator or if you have a flash cart your sega genesis for puzzles there was sonic eraser pyramid magic one two three and special and columns and columns would go on to get its own cartridge for the games that didn't get cartridges they would go away really um like that was their intended purpose i guess there was no real backup plan for saving these games while these games weren't saved by default to the system many people were able to save and dump the games that were available thus preserving them uh, some of these games have also floated around as reproduction or pirated cartridges thus making them be able to be played on real hardware to this day one of the game puzzles that actually zach was interested in was sonic eraser which is a puzzle game that plays similarly to tetris but has sonic in it probably because sonic's a strong brand he is but it's really like they didn't do anything like i have a reproduction cartridge of sonic eraser that i can play on my sega genesis you could literally take sonic out of sonic eraser and it's still a puzzle game that does not change in quality or tone sonic literally shows up as like a character who stands in the center and judges you while you're doing your puzzles and then there are two sonics and if one side of the screen is doing better than the other one of the sonics will just punch the other sonic in the face um and then after you beat the game quote unquote which is like you complete a certain number of puzzles then sonic gains his like invincible mode and he just runs back and forth and then the game freezes and then it goes to credits <laughs> nice Perfect. Unlike the Sega Mega Net, the Sega Channel had games that were already available as cartridges. The titles would rotate monthly. There would be 50 games that would be hosted at any one point in time. And in 1997, Sega would change this number to 70. And and these were everything. I mean, these were some classic titles like Sonic and Knuckles, Space Harrier 2, Disney's Aladdin. The Sega Channel was also cool because you could play some demos for games like Primal Rage. Also, something that was cool about Sega Channel there were three titles that saw release as cartridges but only in japan and europe so in the north american market they were only available on the sega channel uh, and these titles were pulse man alien soldier 
and Mega Man The Wily Wars. Pulse Man is a game developed by the Pokemon developers, Game Freak. Uh, it's a fast-paced action platformer where you play as like a robot guy. Alien Soldier is a side-scrolling run-and-gun game by the developer Treasure, who had previously worked on Gunstar Heroes, which is an amazing game. And Mega Man The Wily Wars is actually a full port of the first three Mega Man games from the Nintendo to the Sega Genesis. It features updated graphics, entirely new new music and a whole new game called Wily Tower which could only be played if you beat all three games. Due to the fact that the US market only saw these games as downloads via Sega Channel, they are highly sought after by collectors for the Japanese and European releases. Though many of these games have since been re-released via things like Nintendo's Virtual Console, the Sega Genesis Mini Console, or just in general reproduction pirated cartridges that have floated around the internet and various sellers throughout the years. Uh, Mega Man The Wily Wars did actually get an official release of a Sega Genesis cartridge for North America in 2021 because Limited Run Games is releasing it. Another game that had a kind of unique treat with owners of the Sega channel was a game called Garfield Caught in the Act. Now, Garfield Caught in the Act is a platformer featuring everyone's favorite orange cat, Garfield. Now, the game itself is not unique to Sega channel. You could buy a copy of Garfield Caught in the Act right now for probably like 10 bucks, maybe less for a cartridge. Subscribers though, were able to download Garfield The Lost Levels, which featured three levels that were only available via this download. The Lost Levels has not been released in any form since it was first available back in the 1990s, meaning for the short window that you had available to play it, that was your availability. Because the fact that the way the Sega Channel worked there wasn't really a way of dumping the ROMs that would come onto your system. So they were gone pretty much the moment you turned off your console and you would have to re-download the, the, the game when you booted it back up. As of the recording of this episode, the ROM file for the Lost Levels has not resurfaced in any way. Um, so it is considered lost media, which means that it is virtually gone, which is sad. Um, I think game preservation is incredibly important, especially with oddities like like this where in the long run three levels of a Garfield game that are missing is not like the collapse of modern culture but it is a piece of media and it's a piece of art in many ways and it's gone it'd be the equivalent of someone telling you the Mona Lisa is gone like you can That's never true. see it again and yes Garfield's not the Mona Lisa but Garfield's still a piece of art. And the lost levels, I'm sure, were great in their own right. We kind of know what the levels were. One was like a Robin Hood level. That could have been fun. Ooh, that could have been fun. So how did the Meganet and the Sega Channel do? Well, the Meganet did terribly. While looking back on the idea, it could certainly be praised for its innovation... Sega faced issues with implementation, largely due to the use of telephone lines and the lack of developers for the service. By 1992, the peripheral would be a common sight in the bargain bins throughout Japan, and it was ultimately discontinued. In fact, when Sega released later versions of the Mega Drive console, they removed the 9-pin port used to connect to the MegaNet modem, effectively preventing the device from ever being used on newer console variations. Interestingly enough, the MegaNet service did 
did resurface in Brazil in 1995 with a focus on email. By 1996, the service was capable of online multiplayer and even had form of chat between users. The hardware and services were provided through Sega's distributor in Brazil, Tectoy, and... Really, if anyone needs to keep Sega stuff alive in Brazil, it's Tectoy that does it. Yeah, I mean, they kept the Master System alive to this day. (laughs) The Sega Channel, however, was very successful in the United States and eventually globally. According to the Electronic Gaming Monthly that we referenced earlier, issue 77, December 1995, they reported in that issue that since the debut of the Sega Channel in the year before, in 94, it was turning into be a pretty popular service. In fact, in the article they reported, a survey was conducted in Sports Illustrated for Kids, uh, where kids responded that they would rather buy into the Sega channel versus buy a new console. Sega officials came out and stated that it was very successful in that year. They would not go on to release subscriber information during that year since they were going to save that for when they did that with investors, so they didn't want to tease it a little bit because that's, I mean, it's dirty pool to (laughs) release that stuff before you tell your investors. So one of the similarities that Zach and I have already made was that the Sega channel was very similar to Game Pass and other subscription services where you can try games before you buy them. And they cycled out a lot faster than Game Pass or the PlayStation Network where it was every month there was different games in and out. So you could really start getting to like a game and then it would be gone before you finished it. So what would you have to do? You would have to buy it. And unlike today, in the 90s, The Sega Channel also saved you from leaving your house. If you wanted to try a game, there was no other way beyond going to your local video game rental store. So you'd have to get in a car, drive down to the video game rental store, go find a game that hopefully they had it available, rent it, pay a rental fee, and bring it back and try it. And then extend the rental or return it and pick a different game or go and eventually buy that game. The Sega Channel kind of streamlined that. You could just, there was 50 to 70 games that you could just try and play. And if you liked any of them, then you knew you could buy them without having to go to the video rental store. Which is fun that, you know, in today's day and age, you can live your entire life buying new games without ever entering a a game store. There was an interesting comment that was made by Gino Gazzardo, whose only credentials was that he was 14 years old, from Illinois. Uh, In the article, he was quoted, Before, I never played with my Sega. It was all dust. I had games that after I beat them, I didn't play them anymore. But now with Sega Channel, I play a lot more because of the many game offerings. But now with the Sega Channel, I would play it a lot more because of the many game offerings. So with some additional research, during the peak of the Sega Channel, it had 250,000 thousand u.s subscribers and there was subscribers globally for it as well so what were the next steps for the sega channel wow she gets saturn games to be available on the sega channel and really start a revolution of having all this catalog available digitally and and be able to just download games and try them out though sega will essentially have too many competing priorities and the saturn wouldn't sell very well and eventually the sega channel would be discontinued as well so that's sega channel that's our sega channel episode hopefully you learned something i certainly did the menu is certainly very 90s i don't know if you've seen it seth but it's like i have not so the the menu would change month to month 
So sometimes oh, it would be like, hey, I'm going to send you this, the Christmas one. Oh, that's fun. And here's the 4th of July one. Jeez, it is really 90s. We're talking about like those like very thick letters <laughs> with like those like um, outlines of people and multicolor TVs. I do like that it looks like there were game guides and like interaction areas where you could like download a game guide or something read a game guide on your tv it's pretty interesting um there was apparently like a news link so you could read the news for the month i guess right there's the test drives which are probably the demos the arcade which is i'm assuming the uh the location where you would be able to play the games for the month. Oh, maybe they sorted the games by genre. So because maybe they had their sports games because they had 50 games. So maybe they embedded like the sports game in the sports arena, the RPGs and swords and spells, family friendly stuff in the family room. Definitely a trip for the uh, the menus. Uh, if you had access to the Sega channel and had fond memories of playing it, uh, let us know. Send us an email. We'll uh, we'll send you a game. God, I wish we had access to Sega channel. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting situation that was going on in that particular electronic gaming magazine. So it was the December issue of 1995, and December is a very popular time for people to release things because of Christmas. Uh, you're either before December or during December. And in that magazine, there was conversations about the PlayStation, about the upcoming Nintendo 64 about the virtual boy being cut in half in regards to the price and about the Sega channel. That magazine was 260 pages. The amount of wonderful vintage content that was just dripping from that magazine was great. All right, that's the Sega channel. Seth, are you ready for the Bulwapa? I'm ready. Let's talk about our games that we're excited about by waiting or passing, or maybe we will be excited about by waiting or passing on. Uh, I'll go first. Hold on, I need to turn on my listening ears. Go ahead. So this game, Seth, is quote-unquote coming soon, according to the listing on GOG. GOG game? It's a GOG game. I don't know if it's exclusively a GOG game, but it is a GOG game. This game is set in America in the 1800s. In this game, you are committed to uh, advancing further and further towards the U.S. Pacific in search for a better life or business or adventure. Uh, You have to create farms, raise cattle, dig for gold, build settlements, and create towns. This game is also an adventure game and a simulation game and an exploration game do you want to know what this game is yeah it sounds like some hybrid of like yukon trail and civilization this game is wild west dynasty oh let me do some research here All right, we're back. You know, based on your description, since you said good old games, I was like picturing some sort of retro style game in my head. And I just, I couldn't get Yukon Trail out of my head for some reason. <laughs> good. I was just like, so I was picturing like that graphics and then like maybe like throwing some like Civ 2. I was like, I did not know what I was expecting. And then I go look it up and it looks like it's like Red Dead Redemption. So Wild West Dynasty is also the same people that did Medieval Dynasty. They're these, these simulation games where you kind of go through and you 
play this life of a character and you work your way through and kind of shepherd a town and civilization and try to make sure that everything is good. I haven't actually played any of the Dynasty games. I'm going to put this down on a wait. I do like Wild West stuff. So I, I think it's definitely a game that's up my alley. But I think I'm going to put it on as a wait and kind of poke around and see if I can... Maybe I'll play Medieval Dynasties first to see if I like the game. I go in and out when it comes to simulation games. I also hype myself up with them where I, I think I really want to play them. And then I play them and I don't really want to play them anymore. So All right. I'm, I'm going to put this down as a wait is what my answer is. Sounds good. My turn. In this game, your choices matter. You'll need to be agile and skilled at fighting, even to just survive. And it takes place in a post-apocalyptic world. I'm interested. Dying Light 2, Stay Human by Techland. To be released February 4th, 2022. And now we'll take a short break while Zach does some research. And we're back. Dying Light 2 Stay Human is, uh, again, as Seth mentioned, uh, made by Techland, due out February 4th, 2022. It is a follow-up to Dying Light, which I believe was a recently played of mine a while ago, very long time ago. But um, Dying Light is a open-world zombie game where you have to kind of survive and fight off zombies and deal with, like, raiders and people that are trying to kind of exploit you during the apocalypse but it also has a parkour element to it and that's what this game looks like it's a bit more of it's set in a much bigger city than the first game where the first game was kind of set in a like a small city this is set in like like it looks like almost like a metropolis it's massive and it gives me um some mirror's edge vibes uh but with zombies and in a post-apocalyptic world um so it's definitely cool i'm going to put it down as a weight um i'm only putting it down as a weight because i'll be honest i thought dying light was very cool but i lost interest in it like halfway through so i don't know if it was just something to do with that game and that maybe i need to revisit it or if there was something in particular that really bothered me about the game and that's why i didn't like it it's weird because it fits all the niches that i like which is like open world i like zombies i like survival horror i like all that stuff but there was something in dying light that i i think i had an issue with and i can't remember what it was um, but i remember i stopped playing it so that's why I'm putting this down as a wait because I want to revisit Dying Light at least to get a better idea of uh, why I initially stopped playing it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I stopped playing it because I played multiplayer and my friend Ryan would shoot propane tanks. So with that being said, if you want to tell us about how awesome this episode was, you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. Our Facebook and Instagram and Twitch are all at Classic Gaming Brothers, and our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. If you want to be able to help out the podcast, you can always uh, give us a rating on whatever service that you use to listen to us. Uh, you can also just listen to more episodes because, you know, listen helps the world go around and if you wanted to do that listening you can listen to us on where all the podcasts are available zach is there anything else that i'm missing don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been zach and i've been seth and we have been the classic gaming brothers uh, that's right <laughs>